Well, we started Revelation back in the fall, and we're wrapping it up today. It's a little bittersweet, isn't it? Um, It's bittersweet in that it's sweet in a sense because um, this has been such a a deeply um, impacting study on my own heart. I think it's been so refreshing for me to kind of live on the precipice of eternity every week as I've been waiting in this book. Um, that has been a sweetness that I'll, be, I'll remain grateful to the Lord for. I hope you felt that a little bit as I've tried to translate some of that to, from my heart to your hearts uh, week in and week out. It's also sweet in that it's coming to an end because this has been a difficult study for me. <laughs> it, has, it has really taxed me, um, and, uh, and, and that's to be expected when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature. But it's been fruitful, but it's been... So, so that's, that's, I want to keep it around, but it's been taxing, so I'm kind of glad to see it wrap up where we get to some other parts of Scripture. But again, I wish, uh, by and large, I wish Revelation had 15 more chapters in it, and we could continue to mine out the glories of God and the visions that are given here. But such is the case. This is the end of the book of Revelation, and it's the end of the Bible. This is the, where the Bible ends in Revelation 22. So... Um, we're going we're gonna to conclude um, this series this morning, and I hope um, that the Lord will bless all that we've thought about to our hearts and that it will provide us with the perspective and endurance and perseverance that this book is intended to have in all of our hearts and all of our lives. So here's the main point of Revelation 22, 6 through 21, and then we're going to unpack it with four questions this morning. Here's the main point. Jesus is coming back, so come to Jesus. That's Revelation 22, 6 to 21 in a nutshell. Let's pray. (laughs) Jesus is coming back, so come to Jesus. So we're going to look at four questions this morning. The first one is, is Jesus really coming back? Second, how do we know? Third, why should I care? And four, what do I do? Number one, is Jesus coming back? Three times in Revelation 22, Jesus promises that he will, in fact, return. We read in verse 1, the following. or Sorry, verse 7, the following. Behold, I am coming soon. We read in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. We read in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. He doesn't say, I will come. He says, I am coming. In effect, he's saying, I'm already on the way. In other words, the second coming is not just something that will happen at the end of time, although that's true, but it's also a process, a work in progress that has long since begun and is now on its way to completion. Remember, we are living in the last days. That doesn't mean that we're living in the last few months before the return of Christ. In New Testament speak, that means we're living in the culmination of redemption. We are living in the last days, meaning we are living between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is what the New Testament calls the last days. So we are at the end here. It can only get better from here. Note also that Jesus says he's coming quickly. Do you see that? He says, behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. But then he says, surely I am coming soon. This often produces mocking. When Jesus says things like, I'm coming soon. Second Peter 3, verses 3 and 4 anticipate that kind of mocking. When Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, what's new? Tomorrow's going to be Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's going to repeat and repeat and repeat. Sun will go up, sun will go down. Seasons will change. People will die. People will be born. I mean, it's going on and on and on. Really? He's not coming again, so the scoffers say. These people disparage the claim that Christ is coming soon, but Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, a few verses after those verses, when he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Remember what thousand means? A long time. All right. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So don't see the delay in Christ's coming as him being slow. See it as him being patient. Evil must run its course, and God's people must be gathered, and then the end will come. And God has an innumerable multitude he is gathering from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So Revelation helps us see that Christ is on the way, not only in what he says assuring us three times that he is coming, but also in the events that we see in Revelation that are happening all around us. These things should confirm for us that Christ is coming as well. Not just Christ's own word, although that's sufficient, but in the things that he's told us to expect. So let me give you three evidences that Christ is in fact coming back. The beast is working, the false prophet is working, and the prostitute is working. First of all, the beast is working. Government is carrying on. While it can do much good, it is also continuing its growth in our land, especially in its opposition to the church. Our brothers and sisters around the world have known this for generations, and we're just beginning to get a taste of it. When the government begins to seek to control, to co-opt, or to crush the church, we need to see this as the beast continuing to wield his influence on the field of human history. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines... How an, how an experienced demon operative might advise a younger, less experienced understudy in the intricacies of counter-Christian spiritual warfare. And in one particular letter, which is especially relevant right now, I think, Lewis describes how politics could be used to tempt and thwart a Christ follower. Here's what Uncle Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood about how to deceive the church in this regard. He says, let your patient begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause. Once you've made the world an end and faith as a means, you've almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he's pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. As long as they got you on Fox News and CNN and social media and not in church, you're good. He's winning, brothers and sisters. He's winning in our own congregation. And we need to recognize it. Now, while Lewis was writing about politics that were especially relevant since the setting was World War II Britain at that point. I mean, if there was ever a time to be consumed with what was happening among nations, it would have been World War II. And yet then, 
Even then, Lewis says, it's still part of the devil's design to get it. The, world, the, 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 the movements of the nations and the activities of worldly governments to occupy the attention of the people of God. Note the progression in Screwtape's letter. First, politics is part of the religion. Then politics is the most important part of the religion. Then politics is the religion. He's succeeding in many sectors of the professing church. It's genius. It's genius. Brothers and sisters, Revelation would tell us over and over and over again, don't put your hope in government. Followers of the Lamb must never be duped into thinking that the state holds your best interests. It does not hold the keys of salvation, and it does not long hold the interests of the church for long. This is why Psalm 146.3 says, Don't put your trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. The beast will always seek to make it otherwise. In Revelation, faithfulness is portrayed positively as following the lamb and being marked with God's seal of ownership and protection. It's also portrayed negatively as not following the beast or receiving the mark of the beast. Together, these two images of faithfulness demonstrate that we cannot have it both ways. We cannot have beast and lamb. We can't have imperial power and lamb power. Civil religion mixed with the worship of God and the lamb. This is an either-or proposition with very serious consequences in the book of Revelation. There is no synthesis, no syncretism permitted here. The uncivil call of Revelation is to forsake the idolatrous worship of secular power and to worship God alone. Here's what one writer says about that. Most of us do not like either-or propositions when it comes to religion. We especially do not like choosing between civil religion and Christian discipleship. It's easier to have it both ways. What makes the both-and approach especially attractive is that it seems so right, so noble, so pious. Why is it so seductive? Because according to Revelation, it's the deliberate, deceitful, demonic work of the propaganda mechanisms of the idolatrous imperial powers. Nationalistic allegiance or devotion, especially when dressed in religious garb, may not feel like idolatry, but Revelation makes, the face, makes us face the issue head on. So the beast is working. Second, the false prophet is working. Religious deception is carrying on. In her book, Strange Rites, New Religions of a Godless Age, author Tara Burton, who I don't believe calls herself a Christian, but is a sociologist, indicates that faith hasn't experienced so much as a, of a decline in America as a renaissance. But it's not so much an abandonment as a remix, but it's not the Christian faith that's taking its place. It's a new and varied form of paganism. She writes... Fifty-five years have passed since the cover of Time magazine proclaimed the death of God, and while participation in mainstream religion has indeed plummeted, Americans have never been more spiritually busy. While rejecting traditional worship in unprecedented numbers, today's Americans are embracing a kaleidoscope, kaleidoscopic panoply of spiritual traditions, rituals, and subcultures, from astrology and witchcraft to soul cycle and the alt-right. As the internet makes it ever easier to find new tribes, modern American religious culture is undergoing a revival comparable with the great awakenings of centuries past. 
disillusioned with organized religion and political establishments alike, more and more Americans are seeking out spiritual paths driven by intuition, not into institutions, from the techno-utopians of Silicon Valley to saintness and polyamorous communities to witches from Bushwick to wellness junkies and social justice activists and devotees of Jordan Peterson. In search of the deep and the real, they are finding meaning, purpose, ritual, and communities in newer, ever newer, ever stranger ways. So the false prophet is on the move. C, the prostitute. Third, the prostitute is working. Not only is religious deception continuing and the government as a beastly entity continuing, but the world is full of deceptive attractions, sensual pleasures, material possessions, social acceptance, the promise of satisfaction, the hope of security, the insatiable lust for power and fame, and the subtle lure of pride. In many ways... The greatest challenge facing us as Bible-believing American Christians today is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. One of the many ways this is showing up, of course, is on social media. The Social Dilemma, an important documentary, which is available, I think, still on Netflix, gives a good answer to why we're so inclined to be hunched over our phones. The apps are designed to dominate our attention and keep us coming back for more. The Social Dilemma explores how these technologies are specifically designed to serve up a perfectly curated and addictive online world where companies profit from tracking our every digital interaction. The algorithms push out content we find interesting in order to keep us on the platform, to keep us consuming, to keep us consuming, to keep us consuming. You're not seeing the world as it is. You're seeing the world as it's been tailored to you. Brothers and sisters, we need to be alert. The church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. A church's worship habits may occupy hours, two hours maybe, of a Christian's week. But podcasts, radio shows, news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for what some studies show is upward of 90 hours. Now, am I saying that all of that is bad or that technology is bad? No, of course not. But the point is, is that the prostitute is working to distract and deceive. The spirit of the age is one of distraction and deception, keeping you away from the important things to focus on the trivial things. And in that sense, the prostitute is working and succeeding. The prostitute's just calling you away for a little while. Just come on over. Spend some time with me. We'll have a good time. Then you can go back to that hard work. That's what, the, that's what the prostitute does. So brothers and sisters, we have to wake up. We need to be alert that this is the world in which Revelation assumes is and confirms in the way we live. The beast is working. The false prophet is working. The prostitute is working. So surely Christ is in fact coming back. Not just because he said so, but because the way in which the world is going confirms it. Second, how do we know? Well, in a sense, we could say, well, we know because of what we just said, right? We've, we know on the basis of Christ's testimony. We know on the basis of the way history is going according to the book of Revelation. But I want to give us four quick reasons for how we know. Revelation closes with many different witnesses testifying to the truth of what's contained in this book. All right? First of all, we have the testimony of God the Father. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, talking about God the Father, these words are trustworthy and true, 
And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So the book of Revelation claims to be nothing less than a word from God to us. God revealed these visions through an angel to John, as we saw at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The words are as faithful and true as the one who gave them. You can bet your life on them because they came from the God who is. Second, not only is the testimony from God the Father, but the testimony of John the Apostle as well. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard them and saw them, I fell down. So I, I, he said, he said I'm, I know that my word is less than God's word, but I just want to add this point, God's telling the truth. <laughs> okay? So not that he had to do that, but he did. He said, he said I, I'm in my rational mind here. John is testifying to the truthfulness of all the visions of everything that's been revealed in this book. He's putting his own reputation on the line as an apostle. This is no unsigned or anonymous prophecy. John is willing to stake his own standing as an apostle of Jesus Christ on the truthfulness of these visions and the veracity of the contents of this book. That's a high price to pay. John knew how solemn this was, since he knew from the Old Testament that the death penalty was given for, for false prophecy. So he's willing to say, I confirm this is true, stone me if it's false. And he knows from James 3.1 that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. He's saying, if what I've seen isn't here, may God damn me to hell for being a false teacher and a false prophet. But I'm telling you, this was not the product of some mushroom hallucination on the island of Patmos. This is the product of divine Holy Spirit-given vision from God. We also have the testimony not only of God the Father and John the Apostle, but also of the angel. Notice verse 9, where we read, But he said to me, this is talking about the angel that he fell at the feet of, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. So the angel now adds his own words of affirmation. He says that he's a fellow servant with those who heed the words of this book. In other words, he is fully intent on obeying everything here as well. The angel is confirming, yes, everything that I've brought to you is true. So much so that he tells John to make the, sure the truth contained in Revelation gets published and spread around. And then finally, as we've already seen, we have the testimony of Jesus. Look at verse 13, where we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then in verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So there it is. You've got God the Father's testimony. You've got God the Son's testimony. You've got John's testimony. You've got the angel's testimony. What more do we need, brothers and sisters, to confirm the truthfulness of this revelation? Joel Beakey says, Revelation is not the product of the fevered imagination of an old man on a rocky island. Neither is it wishful thinking of the persecuted church. The visions John sees are imparted by God himself. The words he hears are the very words of Christ delivered by the angel to the apostle for the church. So after reading Revelation, you can be left with a question in your mind. I mean, is all this true? Is this kind of like science fiction? Is this 
real world or is this fantasy land? But Jesus knows that we all will struggle with the bizarre images and the graphically symbolic pictures in this book. It leaves us wondering if we can really trust and believe what we read here. And the answer is an unequivocal yes. Absolutely you can trust it. Believe God, believe the Jesus, believe the, the Apostle John, believe the angel that was the mediator between God and carrying the vision down to John. So let's believe it because we have all the testimony that we need. You know, this is actually more testimony than we need, right? Because even if you think about 1 Timothy 5, um, you're to admit charges in the church against elders on the basis of two or three witnesses. That was kind of the standard operating procedure in the Old Testament, that if a a charge was going to be verified, it needed a, a couple witnesses to go with it, two or three. You got four here. You got four here, right? You got more witnesses than necessary to confirm the truthfulness of this case. I mean, imagine if the book of Revelation was put on trial for truthfulness. Is this book real? Is, this all, that, is all that's going to transpire in this book really going to happen? All right, prosecutor, call your first witness. I call God the Father. And the Father comes up and says, yep, I revealed it. Okay, prosecution, you got any more witnesses? Yeah, I, I call God the Son. And the Son comes up. Yes, all that the Father has revealed is true, and all that I've spoken is true. It's all going to happen. Well, that should close the case. It should have closed the case with God the Father, right? But you've got God the Father and God the Son. Any other witnesses, prosecution? Yes, I've got two more. I call the Apostle John. John comes off Patmos, catches a helicopter over, gets in the courtroom. Yes, it's all true. Not that you need my word. I mean, God the Father and God the Son. Judge should have thrown it out right there. But I'm here. I'm confirming it. Any more? Yeah, we got several angels. You want to pick one? And then they call an angel and it comes and testifies. So overwhelming evidence, right? And the jury says... Uh, yeah, it's true. All the, right? I mean, it would be a miscarriage of justice to go against that. Just because the volume, not just the volume of evidence, but the character of the witnesses. So let us rest our whole souls on this book, brothers and sisters, and all that's contained in it. Because we're going to need it. We're going to need everything contained in this book. Not just because I have some doomsday prophet that imagines that you're going to wake up next week and be jailed for your faith. No, we need it to finish in Christ. We need it because there are some Sundays we don't want to get up for church. There are Sundays or Wednesdays we don't want to go to prayer meeting. There are Sunday nights where, I can't believe it, but people don't want to come to the Lord's Supper. And you know what? Revelation is meant to get you there. It's meant to kick you in the backside and say, take your faith seriously. People are out to take it from you. Are you just going to let them take it? Are you going to expose yourself again and again to the dangerous, dangerous world with no spiritual encouragement whatsoever or minimal? Eat one time a week and expect that to make it? If you come here and you hear me preach for 40 minutes and you don't open your Bible and you don't pray and you don't engage in worship and you don't come to church and you don't fellowship with believers, do you think you're going to make it? You have no reason to think so, biblically. Because God has not only promised that he would preserve you, but he's also given you the means of your preservation. And if you say, yes, God will preserve me, I don't have to do anything. 
That is not the response of a believer. A believer says, God will hold on to me. I'm holding on to God. I say that because Revelation does not picture this easy, comfy road to heaven. We are being deceived if we think it's otherwise. It is not easy to get to heaven. The way is narrow and hard that leads to life. And few find it. Brothers, we, brothers and sisters, we have got to impress upon ourselves the seriousness of our faith and not just all the blessings that God gives me and how sweet it is to be loved by Jesus. It is. But we are also in war for our souls. So let's take it seriously. Let's engage it with all of our might. And that's why the points three and four are what they are, to help give us some of that ammunition to keep moving forward. So question number three, why should I care? We've looked at, is Jesus coming? Yes. How do we know? Several examples. Why should I care? Well, I'm specifically thinking of unbelievers here, people in our church, young people, kids, older people, who have yet to decisively put the Jesus jersey on. You're just in the middle. Okay, you're attending church, you're coming, but you have yet to say, Jesus is mine, I'm his. Hey, I'm coming out with this. I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple. I want other people to know about it. I want the church to know about it. I'm going public in baptism about it. That kind of disciple. I'm trying to use, I, have, I want you to give me your attention for the next five minutes because I want to try to persuade you that you don't need to wait any longer on that decision. No more Sundays go by without reckoning with the realities of this. So when Christ returns... According to verses 11 and 12, there will be no second chances, and we will face the judgment of God. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. I know that's a confusing verse. I'll talk about it in a second. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is a summary of human destiny. The, world, the words indicate the fixed state in which both the righteous and the wicked will find themselves at Christ's return. When Christ returns, there will be no further opportunities. John is making the point that when a person dies or Christ returns, their final destiny is fixed. Whatever state you're in when Christ appears, that's the state you're in for eternity. Filthy, still filthy. Righteous, still righteous. Holy, still holy. Evil, still evil. It's fixed. Nothing about Christ's return is going to magically transform anybody. All it's going to do is fix them in an eternal state in which they were in when he arrived. As Ecclesiastes 11.3 says, if a tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, I've been reading R.C. Sproul's biography by Stephen Nichols. And did you know that it was that verse that converted R.C. Sproul? Ecclesiastes 11.3 was the verse that God used to convert R.C. Sproul. The biography recounts the story, and I want to read it to you. R.C. and his college roommate Johnny were all set to head out to a bar to celebrate the weekend. As they got in the car, they realized they were out of cigarettes. They hopped out and went back into the lobby of their dorm to get a pack of Lucky Strikes from the cigarette vending machine. 
it's obviously now you're now you know exactly when R.C. Sproul was growing up, right? Some are like, I was there, I did that same thing. You can remember those days well. R.C.'s quarter dropped in the slot, and the pack fell. As he bent down to retrieve it, he saw two guys sitting at a table. They motioned for R.C. and Johnny to join them. It was two upperclassmen whom R.C. recognized, one of them being the star of the football team. What are you two doing? The football star asked. Nothing, R.C. said, not about to confess their plans. The two upperclassmen were engaged in a Bible study. They talked about Christianity and the things of God in the Bible for well over an hour, all new territory for R.C. Then one of them turned the open Bible in R.C.'s direction, and he instructed R.C. to look and read the verse. It was Ecclesiastes 11.3. If a tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. The verse cut R.C. in two. He saw himself as that tree. The same, he, the same, he saw himself in the same state of torpid paralysis, fallen, rotting, and decaying. He left the table and returned to his dorm room. When he entered, he didn't turn on the light. He just knelt down beside the bed, praying to God, asking God to forgive his sins. R.C. never made it to the bar that night. He recounts the story himself. As I went to my bedroom that night and got on my knees, my experience was one of transcendent forgiveness. And I was overwhelmed by the tender mercy of God, the sweetness of his grace, and the awakening he gave me for my life. And I pray that any of you who have not yet experienced an awakening to the reality of Christ would have that experience in your life. That you would look carefully at the scriptures and the word of God and that that word may be used in power to quicken your soul and your spirit that you too may be awakened to the fullness of glory and peace and joy that is ours in Christ. Being dead, he yet speaks. He later said humorously, I think I'm the only person in church history who was converted to Christ by that verse. (laughs) To which his biographer, Stephen Nichols, added, I think it's safe to remove the probably from that assessment. But I say to you in all seriousness this morning, is there a second person who would be converted this morning under that verse? Anyone? When he returns, there will be no further opportunity to repent and be saved. So may you be this morning. Fourthly, final question, what do I do? What do I do? Well, several things. I want to talk about four specific takeaways from the book of Revelation. And these, these are not just takeaways from this chapter, although they're here, but from our entire time in the book. So what do I do? First of all, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride says, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, verse 17 is the great invitation at the end of Revelation. It is an invitation to anyone who thirsts. See, that's, that's God. God's got to do that, right? God creates the thirst. I can, we can pray till our guts are prayed out. We can preach till our guts, guts are preached out. We can talk. We can model. We can love. But unless God creates a thirst in the soul... No one will come. But to those who are thirsty, come. Come and take. Look at what it says. Let the one who desires 
See, I can't create that desire, but I can tell you that if you do desire, I know where to send you. Right? Take the water of life without price. It costs Jesus everything. It costs you nothing except for everything but Jesus. (laughs) Right? That's what makes salvation by grace so awesome and so terrible. I remember a, a story that was shared by a pastor where he was in a small evangelistic Bible study and he had shared about free grace and the offer of free salvation. And uh, there was a woman in the Bible study who was not yet a Christian and, and she objected. She didn't object in the Bible study, but afterwards she went up to the pastor and she said, I totally understand everything you said and I don't want salvation by grace. I'd rather have salvation by works. He said, why? He said, because if it's by grace, God can tell me to do anything. And I don't want to give up control of my life. She got it. She understood grace, right? That grace is free, but it's costly. It's costly to Christ. It's costly for us. That's why we got to take up our cross and follow him. There's no cheap grace out there. Cheap grace is non-grace. Cheap grace saves nobody. People that say, oh, I can be forgiven of my sin and, and live however I want to, they're not under grace. They're under sin. Right? The only people who are under grace are those who are fighting sin. That's how you know you're under grace. Paul would say if you're claiming to be under grace, but you're living in the power and presence and daily practice of ongoing unrepentant sin, you're under sin. That's what it means to be under sin. To be under grace, though, is to be released from the power of sin, not the presence of sin. We struggle with sin, but we make war on it, and we seek to repent of it, and we're not going to live in it. Sin might live in us. We're not going to live in it. We're going to do all we can to not live in it. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this particular verse, verse 17, about the thirsty coming, says, To my mind, the solemnity of this invitation lies partly in the fact that it's placed at the very end of the Bible and placed there because it's the sum and substance, the aim and objective of the whole Bible. We may say of the scriptures that what John said of his gospel, these are written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, the, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So far as you're concerned, this blessed book has missed its purpose unless you have been led by it to come to Christ. That's the whole point of Revelation. Come to Christ! (laughs) If you haven't yet come to Christ, realize this is God's purpose for the book of Revelation in your life. It is. It's God's intention for our time in it for you. Christ wants to redeem you from this culture of death by his death for faithfulness to death, which paradoxically is life itself and victory itself. So come to Christ. Don't say, oh, I'll wait until later to accept Christ. i got a lot of living to do. There are two mistakes with that attitude. One, you're not guaranteed later. The second mistake is to assume that you can come to Christ whenever you want, and you can't. Why? Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Men often and mostly die as they've lived. That's the way. There's very few deathbed conversions. As one preacher said, there's one so that on the thief on the cross, there's one so that no one would be without hope, but there's only one so that no one would presume that they're it. So you can't come to Christ whenever you want. 
If you're thirsty now, now's the time to come. Now's the time to come. Don't, don't expect him to visit you another day. He doesn't owe that to you. If he's visiting you now, come to him now. He may pass by. John 6, 65 says, No one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. He might not come around again. Next, come to Christ. Second, change your clothes. Change your clothes. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Every one of us wears a spiritual robe. It contains all our thoughts, all our words, all our deeds, and they all go into the making of this robe. But this robe is tattered, dirty, and full of holes. All our righteous deeds apart from Christ are but filthy rags in God's sight. By nature, we're all sinners. None of us has the right to enter into the presence of God. The only hope we have of entering the new heavens and the new earth is to somehow have a change of clothes. To have someone clean and mend our robes. Nothing on planet earth can cleanse a filthy sinner's rags except the blood of Christ. Only if we are cleansed, forgiven, and purified by the saving work of Jesus Christ do we have any hope of entering into God's presence where we will have access to the tree of life again, as we saw last week, in fellowship with God forever. Blessed are those who wash their robes in that blood. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Come to Christ, change your clothes. Thirdly, obey his commands. Obey his commands. Look at verse 7. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So obey. Stick to what he said. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Keep it all. Don't add to God's word. Don't take away from God's word. But keep God's word. Don't pick and choose which parts of God's word you will obey and which parts you won't obey. Don't pick and choose disobedience to God and then some obedience to God. We must not take away from God's word like those in progressive Christianity, so-called Christianity, manipulating it so that it becomes more palatable and acceptable to sinful men and women. We must not say things like, yes, I know the Bible says that, but neither can we add to God's word like those in fundamentalist Christianity, adding to God's word beyond what he has explicitly said. We must be aware of both the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees tried to reflect and take away from God's word. The Pharisees sought to add to it, and we've got both in our day. The Sadducees took away from the Bible. The Pharisees added to the Bible. Our responsibility is to keep the words that are written here. To keep the words of Revelation is not simply to believe them, to be true, but to respond with obedience to their commands. Don't ever think that Revelation is beyond your ability to understand or its commands and exhortations are irrelevant for people living in the 21st century. Note the emphasis on words. Keep the words of this book. The assumption is they're intelligible. God's blessing, his favor, his power rest especially on those who take this book seriously and commit themselves in the power of the Spirit to follow its teaching. So what what are the commands? Let me give you four quickly. First of all, fight sin. 
Revelation is urging us to resist compromise. It's so easy to blend in with the world in subtle and seemingly justifiable ways to the point where our lifestyles look virtually the same as theirs. We should not look just like the world looks. Two, endure suffering. Revelation is written for the suffering. It's written for those who have cancer. It's written for those whose marriages are falling apart. It's written for wayward people, parents with wayward children. It's written for people who are going to lose their job or have lost their job. It's written for the lonely. It's written for those who feel like God isn't hearing their prayers. It's written for those who, whose eyes are filled with tears. It's written for the suffering. And it's written to encourage us in the midst of our suffering. So Revelation tells us this. Don't be surprised by it. One writer said, if we close our eyes to Revelation's harshly realistic portrait of the church's life as one of suffering and martyrdom, we will be caught off off guard when pain, social rejection, or even violent opposition breaks in upon our lives. Is it our intentional deafness to Revelation's call to expect and endure suffering that leaves so many comfortable Western churches and Christians ill-prepared to stand fast when life gets hard? Does this explain their disappointment with God when he does not deliver the tranquil life they expected and instead cause them to endure hardship, walking by faith and not sight? Surely revelation is given to, expect, to, to encourage us to expect and endure suffering. Not only fight sin, not only endure suffering, but love the church. Love the church. The spirit and the bride say come. See, revelation gives us a picture of, of the church that helps us to endure the church. Because <laughs> if you don't know, the church is a means of your sanctification and often feels like an attack on your sanctification. Because we're all broken family. We're sinners, we'll sin against each other, we'll disappoint each other, we'll let each other down. And Revelation is meant to get us to Revelation 19 where we say, look, that brother, that sister that irritates me now I'm going to sit around the table with them and worship Jesus for all eternity. And they're going to be beautiful. I'm going to, they're going to be so beautiful. The person in the church right now that gives you the most heartache, that disappoints you the most, you say, I don't have anybody about that. That's because you're not plugged in enough. If you say, I like everybody around here, that's a call to get involved. <laughs> I'm not joking. Everybody's just so nice to me. Get involved. Now, that doesn't mean that we're trying to be offensive, right? But the more you live with people, the more they irritate you. Right, families? Right? So, so the idea then is that when we think, all right, that person or that brother, that sister is the most grating on me, that's the person when I see them in glory, I'm going to be tempted to fall down and worship them because they're so beautiful. They're so, they're, and brothers and sisters, we need to keep the end, end game in mind, Right? Let's focus on the beauty of what the bride is going to be and let's spend our lives making her ready. Is this not a vision for church involvement? I can't give you a better one. To give your life to the church of Jesus Christ for her beauty and for her growth and holiness and for her advancement. That's, that's the calling of every Christian at some level. We're all to give ourselves to the beauty of the bride trying to make the bride more beautiful. We're to strive to be that ourselves but then we're to strive to help other people to do that as well. And the, be- the picture here is of a bride that is radiant. 
You have the groom who is merciful and gracious and loving, who gave his life for his bride, and we need to see the church through these eyes. What we see now is not so hot. And I'm not talking about just, I'm talking about the church in general. What we see is not so hot. But what will be one day, the beauty, the radiance, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. Let's give our lives to that, to beautify his church and make her ready for that day. Finally, share the gospel. So we obey the commands, which are fighting sin, enduring suffering, loving the church, and sharing the gospel. How does this book end? With an evangelistic emphasis. The church saying to the world, come to Jesus. To everyone you know, to everyone you work with, to everyone you encounter, tell them that God's grace is free and God's wrath is real. Tell them that they can be saved and know and enjoy God forever and ever. Tell them to come to Christ. We get to be a part of ushering in the consummation of history. As we proclaim Christ, we hasten the coming of Christ. You want Jesus to come back? Preach the gospel. Do you know that's what Peter said? I'm not just making that up. Peter said the reason Christ has yet to come back is because God desires more people to reach repentance. So 2 Peter 3.9, that's what 2 Peter 3.9 says. And then in verse 12 he says, Hasten the coming of God. Usher it in by giving your life to proclaim the gospel to everyone in your sphere, in your family, in your neighborhood, among your coworkers, among your, anyone you're engaged in recreational activities with. Share the gospel. Speak the gospel. Now let me conclude. We've seen what Revelation wants, to take, wants us to take away. Coming to Christ, changing our clothes, obeying the commands of fighting sin and enduring suffering and loving the church and sharing the gospel. But I want to conclude where I think Revelation would have us conclude. Worship God. Worship God. Notice verse 9. The angel's final commands. Worship God. So we're going to do that. We're going to do that right now. We're going to worship him with joy for his holy character, for Christ's redemption. Christ is reigning now, brothers and sisters. He sees your tears. One day soon he will return. He will personally wipe those tears from your eyes with his own hand. And all the pains and all the hurts of this world will be gone and the new creation will come. You're in the grip of God's gracious governance and nothing can happen to you apart from his sovereign will. You are safe from God's wrath. You are sealed by God's word. Satan cannot overcome you. Suffering cannot destroy you. Death cannot keep you. You belong to God in Christ and he will keep you to the end. So let's worship him. Let's pray and do that. acknowledge before you that we need everything that you have spoken to us, but this book seems oh so relevant for us in our own day, and we know that's because it's oh so relevant for your church in any day, in any day between Christ's first coming and his second coming. We need these visions. We need these words. We need this perspective. We need these exhortations. We need this comfort. So, Lord, would you accomplish 
immeasurably more than all I've ever said or thought or we've, we could ever ask or think in our lives, in our church, through this word, through this book that we have spent those many months in. We know, we know, Lord, that your word will never return to you void and it will accomplish all the purposes for which you sent it. And therefore, we know this has not been a waste of time. It has been a time where we have gotten to reorient ourselves week after week to the, to the greatest reality in the universe, that God is on his throne. God is reigning over this world. Christ will return. Eternity is long. Hell is real. Salvation is necessary. Obedience is necessary. So, Lord, help us. Help us. Give your spirit to us. Give your spirit to us to enliven and quicken and strengthen and pour oil into this lampstand that needs, in an ongoing way, your ongoing, continual, gracious presence. Forgive us for our many sins. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for the robe in which we're clothed. We want to live for your glory. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.